Hey, I'm Jason Gray. Hey, this is Sarah Gross. Hey, I'm Andrew Osinga. Hi, this is Michael Carr. Hey, this is Andrew Peterson, and you're listening to Voices in My Head. And this is me, so let's have some exciting music. Who is me, you ask? Well, me is Rick Lee James, and this is my podcast, Voices in My Head. We've got a great show for you this week, so stay tuned. Welcome back to the Voices in My Head podcast. I am your host, Rick Lee James, and this is episode number 146. Today, we have a special guest, David Morell. David is an incredible author who has been writing for over 40 years. I'm going to tell you more about him in the intro of our conversation together, but you may know him as the father of Rambo. Yes, his very first book was First Blood, and uh, there's a whole lot uh, that we talk about in today's conversation. I wish we would have had time to talk about more. He's a very deep guy, and there's a whole lot um, going on underneath the characters that he writes about. He literally has been a person that has lived a lot of different lives in uh, in the time that he's been around and has done a great service to literature, I believe. And even though we talk about things like action novels, um, there's something deeper and something beneath what he writes in even his action novels that really is about helping us to stop and hear and understand the other, uh, the people that we don't understand at times. You'll find that things are not black and white. Uh, your your characters in the stories that he writes are really, um, they're, they're not just like good versus evil. There's a, a real point to the stories. There's a challenge to actually look beneath and see characters, even that we would see as evil or as the bad guy, that there's something underneath that that causes uh, them to be where they are. And David is a huge proponent of sitting down and actually talking with the other, trying to understand their viewpoint. And so even though there's uh, maybe a reputation about Rambo of just being this big action hero, go in, shoot them all up, there's something so much uh, sweeter, I would say, and something deeper about David Morell's intent in writing these stories. Um, he is a great writer. I have read about five of his works now, and I love them. I plan on reading more. Uh, we had a great conversation today, and I know you're going to enjoy it. In just a moment, I'm going to play that for you. I do want to remind you, though, if you live near a Lifeway store, um, there's an album that's out that I've written a couple of songs for. Uh, there's a whole bunch of artists on it. It's really great, and it's called Positively Hope. I believe that right now uh, it's available for only $5. It is a Lifeway exclusive, so you can only get it at the Lifeway stores. Or if you go to Lifeway.com, maybe you don't live very near a Lifeway store, uh, you can order it. And uh, right now, like I said, I believe, I don't know if it's for a limited time or not, but they are marketing it for $5. And I was just so honored of the 10 songs that are on the album with various artists. They picked two of mine to go on this. So I, I just feel so very blessed. This is my first national release, and I hope you'll buy the album and enjoy it. I hope it brings you hope. Um, it is a, a positive album that, that hopefully is going to bring hope. And uh, that's all I'm going to say about that right now. Uh, speaking of hope, there's a lot of hope in David Morell's writing, and I think you're going to really enjoy the conversation that we had today. He's such a busy guy, and uh, he just got back from New York City where he was at Thriller Fest and had uh, a great experience out there. 
And I, I just think you need to hear from David. He's a neat person, and he's so kind, so genuine. And uh, we were supposed to have about a 30-minute conversation, and we were having such a good time, uh, ended up being closer to an hour. So this is my talk with David Morell, one of the, uh, the great authors of our time. Thank you for listening to Voices in My Head. God bless. In 1972, David Morrell published his debut novel about a veteran with PTSD who returned home from the Vietnam War, bringing the war home with him. The name of this groundbreaking novel is First Blood. It was called The Father of the Modern Action Novel, and was widely and enthusiastically reviewed. It was also taught in high schools and colleges. It became a 1982 film starring Sylvester Stallone and led to a series of films about Rambo, who joined the ranks of the top five internationally recognized thriller icons, Sherlock Holmes, Tarzan, James Bond, Harry Potter, and Rambo. In addition to being Rambo's creator, David Morrell also holds a Ph.D. in American Literature from Penn State and was a professor in the English Department at the University of Iowa, where he taught from 1970 to 1986. His numerous New York Times bestsellers include the classic spy novel The Brotherhood of the Rose, The Fraternity of the Stone, and The League of Night and Fog. Eventually wearying of two professions, Morrell gave up his academic tenure in order to write full-time. Shortly after, tragedy struck the Morell family as David's 15-year-old son Matthew was diagnosed with a rare form of bone cancer and died in 1987, a loss that haunts not only Morell's life but his work, as in his memoir about Matthew Fireflies and his novel Desperate Measures, whose main character lost a son. In 2007, after 40 years of novels, honors, and awards, David Morrell was able to add comic book writer to his resume, writing the acclaimed miniseries turned graphic novel Captain America the Chosen. Since then, he has also written stories for The Amazing Spider-Man, as well as The Savage Wolverine. And I could go on and on, but I think I'll let Mr. Morrell speak for himself. David Morrell, welcome to the Voices in My Head podcast. Well, well, thank you. It's, uh, for me, it's always interesting to listen to an introduction um, because uh, this, uh, as you noted, First Blood was published in 1972, and here we are in 2015, 43 years later, and <clears throat> it's, uh, it's very gratifying for me to have a career that's lasted this long. Oh, I bet. Just, it's amazing. It's, it was actually kind of stunning as I was going through your website and just seeing the, the list of, uh, of not only your works, but then just honors that you've been given throughout the years. And, and it's just, it's a really stellar career. So congratulations on, on all that you've been able to accomplish. Thank you. Well, there's so many things I'd like to talk to you about, and, and I know time is limited today, so I wonder if maybe we should just start at the beginning and just kind of move sure. on from there. Um, I've read a few of your books. I've Over the last uh, couple of months, I actually read First Blood, and I've read Brotherhood of the Rose. Um, I've read your, uh, your book, Fireflies. I read... Uh, your Captain America, The Chosen, and I read your Spider-Man stories. So I tried to be, uh, I tried to kind of run the gamut as far as different styles that you have written and different things. But I think if we just start 
with First Blood, that might be the best place to go. What an intriguing book, because I remember uh, growing up and seeing on TV, um, it wasn't the, wasn't the theatrical release version, it was the TV version of First Blood as a kid, and being captivated by it, and thinking, whoa, what is this movie? I've never seen anything like this before. So then years later, to, to find this novel, and to find that I, I really feel like after reading the novel, there is a... a a lot deep in there that I don't think the movie's ever touched upon. So I'd, I'd love to ask you, what drove you to begin writing a book like First Blood in the first place? I, I was a graduate student at Penn State in 1967, and uh, I had several... Uh, I, I got to back up and say that uh, Penn State graciously gave me... Uh, free tuition in exchange for teaching in their um, composition department. Hmm. And uh, as a teacher, I uh, had some students who had just returned from Vietnam. Hmm. And they had a problem with me as an authority figure. Uh, I was roughly their age, uh, young. And uh, they... First of all, I wondered why the heck I wasn't hadn't been in the war, and I had to explain to them that I was married and had a child, and that it just wasn't going to happen. At, at, at least at that time in the war. Later, they 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 did take uh, married people, and um, once they understood the, the circumstances, they began to talk to me about what it was like coming back. Hmm. And so I was, I was, you know, they, they talked to me about symptoms of what we now recognize as post-traumatic uh, stress disorder, but didn't have a name then except maybe shell shock or something like that, battle fatigue. Uh, those were the kinds of words that were used. And, and uh, But they talked about insomnia and nightmares and when they did sleep and sweats and mm. uh, ducking from loud noises and difficulty in relationships and anger. You know, these are familiar, familiar symptoms. So I had a, uh, even though I hadn't been in the war, I had close contact with people who had come back. And uh, at the same time, in 1967 and 1968, um, the, the upheaval in the nation because of the Vietnam War and the civil rights movement uh, was such that um, many uh, of, of students at Penn State at the time uh, felt that there was a pretty good chance of a civil war. And hmm. uh, if that sounds um, exaggerated, I, I'll point out that in 1967 there was a four-day riot, uh, three-day riot, um, in Chicago, uh, outside and inside too, the Democratic National Co- uh, Convention. Hmm. Uh, war protesters uh, were uh, attacked by uh, police officers, and of course it depended on your point of view as to who was right and who was wrong. Were the protesters behaving irrationally? Were the police behaving outrageously? Many called it a police riot. Uh, and that became the tone for the late 1960s. In 1968, as a consequence of the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr., Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and uh, Robert Kennedy, uh, there weren't 
10 riots in the United States. There weren't 50 riots in the United States. There weren't 100 riots. There were many, many hundreds of riots. Wow. And in many of the cities, Gary, Indiana, Detroit, for example, they still haven't recovered. Hmm. Uh, The legacy of those years, I mean, it just the scars are still with us physically and in many cases emotionally, families were driven apart about their attitudes toward the war and uh, civil rights. Hmm. So I thought the whole place was going to go up. And uh, I have to add that I was a Canadian at the time. I had another reason why I was not in the Vietnam War. I had come here as a student. I'm now an American citizen, but at the time, uh, I was uh, forbidden uh, by law to have any opinions about American politics. In fact, I had to sign a loyalty oath. Hmm. Uh, and uh, I, uh, as a can- consequence, kept my mouth shut. But all the while I'm watching this, and I'm saying, this is nuts. This is just insane. And then all the demonstrations on campuses. And then later, when the book was just being finished, we have the absolutely shameful event in which students at Kent State in Ohio were shot dead mm-hmm. by uh, Ohio National Guardsmen. This is crazy. Hmm. So it is against that anger and upheaval that I decided to write First Blood in an effort to try to choose two people, Rambo, uh, the returned Vietnam vet who had hated his experiences so much and learned so much about himself that he hated, um, that he had been radicalized, and the police officer, a veteran from Korea, uh, uh, who in a way represented the establishment, and these two guys went at each other, and because I alternated the viewpoint in the novel, Rambo, Teasel, Rambo, Teasel, Teasel being the name of the mm-hmm. police officer, um, the, 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 um, the reader couldn't decide who was right and who was wrong. Right, exactly. Uh, and, and just as I said earlier, you know, in the, in the Chicago riots uh, during the Democratic National Convention, who was at fault? I mean, everybody's got a point of view. And so that was the, the whole idea of the novel, that, uh, you know, the, our, uh, our relative points of view can cause us to attack one another and in you know in in the case of first blood the idea was to bring the warm home and have a mini war in the united states that you know sort of paralleled all the all the riots that were 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 going on in reality yeah, and that's I'm I'm glad you said that actually about the two characters and the interchange because that was one thing that I just found brilliant about it because I think with my own you know preconceived notions having seen all the Rambo movies um, I wanted to go into it be like okay Rambo's definitely the hero of this and yet by the end of the book I think um, I was as sympathetic towards Teasel as I was Rambo maybe even more Good. so at times. Good, yeah, and that was the intention. I wanted to write an action book that didn't feel like a genre book, uh, that didn't have heroes, that didn't have villains, that, you know, that yeah. ideally the reader would feel that this was a real story, that these were real people, uh, and that, you know, it's all viewpoint is everything uh, in life as well as in fiction. And, you know, we, we, we carry our prejudices around with us, and I don't mean, you know, racial or, or sexual prejudices or you know, gender prejudices or what have you, but um, we, you know, we get so isolated in our point of view 
uh, that we have difficulty imagining what the world looks like from somebody else's perspective and why people believe certain things that we do not. It's mm-hmm. not like they decided to be perverse. They have reasons that we don't want to understand often. Sure. So the novel is about, actually, at bottom, about trying to understand one another um, or the need to because these guys never make the effort and the result is disastrous. Hmm. Well, it was a really a great experience to get to read that, that novel and just to see from those two viewpoints. And I, I would say if, if the movies suffer from anything, it would probably be that um, from that, actually, because I, I feel like it's so brilliant in the way that you wrote. Um, if The film, I don't think, quite was able to capture any of them, this idea that there's there's not really a good guy, not really a bad guy in that, because it became so uh, so cut and dry, you know, from then on out. Rambo was definitely the hero always, and everybody else was pure evil, you know, <laughs> type thing. But not to say they aren't enjoyable, but I just think your your original idea and the original novel, to me, are, are just brilliant. And um, and I, I feel like it would be difficult to even capture that on film, so, you know, I even applaud them well, trying that. I suppose it might be possible. We have to, you know, realize films being what they are. And, you know, the urge to say, all right, this guy's a good guy and that's a bad guy. I don't know if people feel that Brian Dennehy's portrayal of Teasel is exactly bad, but, uh, you know, the sympathy is clearly for Sylvester Stallone in the movie. Uh, and that's because the the, the movie, in, even though it used basically the same plot, uh, reinterpreted the character. My Rambo had gone to war uh, and had discovered that he did one thing very well, and that was kill people. Hmm. And he hated himself for it. And he came back with the self-loathing uh, that many uh, vets came, did come back with. And one reason why they never, like, like vets who really saw action tend not to talk about it. Because yeah. It's so awful. And, um, uh, and so I wanted to you know communicate that 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 disen dis- disenchantment isn't even the word I, I used the word radicalized earlier he hates himself and he, he hates the system that put him in that uh so and that's a quite different from the rambo that Sylvester stallone per- portrays who is essentially a passive gentle man who's um uh, you know, just wants to be left alone, and and mm-hmm. you know, is kind of a victim. Uh, quite different, uh, quite different uh, ways of looking at the character. Sure, sure. Um, one thing, and I don't know if anyone's ever taught. I'm sure over the years, someone has probably uh, addressed this to you. But uh, being that I'm a person who who is a believer myself, um, I come at things a lot of times from the idea of spirituality. And uh, in the books yeah. of yours that I read. Uh, recently, I, I I actually found sometimes very subtle and sometimes a little more overarching. But uh, this idea that these characters are also struggling uh, in their situations with their spirituality as well. And if you don't mind, I'd love to read one uh, excerpt from from First Blood that remind me of that, oh, and just to get do. your thoughts on it. Um, this passage really stood out to me because never in any of the Rambo films did I ever get this side of Rambo. Uh, and and the, the part from the book is this. What about God? The idea embarrassed him. 
It was only in moments of absolute fear that he had ever thought about God and prayed to him, always embarrassed because he did not believe and felt so hypocritical when he prayed out of fear, as if in spite of his disbelief there might be God after all, God who could be fooled by a hypocrite. When he was a child, then he believed. He certainly did believe when he was a child. How did it go, the nightly act of contrition? The words came hesitantly, unfamiliarly to him. Oh my God, I am heartily sorry for... for what? Uh, I'd love to get your thoughts on that because that's such a deep other side of of Rambo that we we very rarely uh, would even think of, I guess. Well, you're certainly not in in the films that they don't go in in that direction. Um, I was raised in a Catholic grade school, high school, and college. Um, I have, I am, you know, it it, it becomes awkward to talk about spirituality. Mm -hmm. I'm not religious. I, Mm -hmm. I don't have any use for organized religion because I think that the politics of religion takes over uh, on top of uh, spirituality. Um, But uh, I certainly had ideas of that sort, of the the sort that you read. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I, I, for, you know, the first third of my life, uh, well, that's not true because I'm (laughs) asked at work now, but, you know, for, let's say, 20 years of my life. And uh, it's, it's in my books a lot. Uh, it's in the Brotherhood of the Rose. It's in the Fraternity of the Stone. It's in the League of Night and Fog. It's in Fireflies uh, and, and other books that I could mention where overt discussions of religion and spirituality occur. Uh, and in fact, you know, there's another spot, as, as you know, in First Blood when he is dying, Mm-hmm. Uh, in which he it feels as if he's being transported in you know the blast of his death uh, it's, it's as if he's being transported to the center of the universe to be I- immersed in God hmm. uh, it's you know it's a very almost beatific experience that he has I, I, a little spoiler there, but it's too late now. I already said it. The ending of the novel is different from the ending of the film. Sure. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a big deal for me, and uh, you can't you can't ignore uh, religion uh, it, when you're dealing with people. It's just uh, it, characters and stories. It's just too big a topic, and sure. it controls uh, you know too many people. But you know, just to say again. My my feeling is that organized religion becomes a self-justifying operation in which it frequently forgets why it was established in the first place. I I always joke to people um, when when we talk about that sometimes because I have a lot of different guests from a lot of different uh, backgrounds on. And I say, well, if you're against organized religion, you should come to my church because we're the most dis- disorganized place you ever saw. You know? <laughs> there you go. So, there you go. <laughs> no, that's... That's funny. Well, um, you know what? With with that in mind, and actually hearing your views on that, which I find fascinating, um, I, your your book Brotherhood of the Rose that really plays strongly in there. And one of our listeners actually forwarded a question to me. Uh, his name is Daniel Butcher, and he's a huge fan of yours, and is just just I think read just about everything that you have ever oh, written. And 
His question for you actually was, uh, what parallels do you see between intelligence groups and religious orders? Because that, that is such a strong theme in, in Brotherhood of the Rose. And so he was curious, and, and I would be curious. I'd love to hear uh, your thoughts on that, or if that was just something that you've kind of contrived for these novels. <clears throat> no, it, it, isn't, it isn't contrived. I'm trying to think of the novel in which I began with the Senate Church Committee, uh, hearings, and I quoted in an epigraph um, that the Senate Church Committees, and that's hilarious, the guy's name was Church, right? Oh, right, right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like they're doing an investigation into the church, but no, it, a man named Church was in charge of the investigation of the uh, Central Intelligence Committee, and he pointed out that... Um, the parallel between uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hesitating here because I'm, as I'm talking to you, I'm trying to see if I can find which novel it might have been. Uh, in fact, I've got it. It's from the Fraternity of the Stone. Okay. It, and this is the U.S. Senate's Church Committee Report on Intelligence Activities, 1976. In some respects, the intelligence profession resembles monastic life. Hmm. with the disciplines and personal sacrifices reminiscent of medieval orders. Wow. And uh, what they're getting at is that uh, the, the single-minded <clears throat> devotion to outwitting the enemy <clears throat> leads in a, to a, a very uh, ascetic life, um, you know, the ways you compromise people are by, in the intelligence world, <clears throat> are by using their proclivity for uh, for uh, gambling or drugs or alcohol or sex, uh, you know, in the sense of adultery or what have you, um, to, uh, as weaknesses in order to blackmail people into hmm. doing things for you. Um, and uh, the... Uh, the consequences that is a really professional spy um, who lives like a monk is determined to have no weaknesses that the other side can manipulate. Hmm. <clears throat> and there, so there's a kind of a simplicity and rigidness and discipline and schedule, if you like. Uh, schedules are kind of a wrong word because intelligence people in their daily lives try not to follow a, a schedule so they won't be predictable. But even that, it can be con sort of interpreted as a schedule by not being predictable. Uh, so, yes, uh, there's, a, there's a strong connection there. And in the three books, Brotherhood of the Rose, Fraternity of the Stone, and The League of Night and Fog, I investigated that sense of spies as being almost monks. And hmm. in, in fact, in a couple of those novels, I investigated the, uh, the Catholic Church's intelligence system, uh, which in large part was predicated upon a civilian organization known as Opus Dei, hmm. uh, Work of God is what it translates from the, from the Latin, um, a, 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 which is still in existence, but it's hardly ever talked about anymore, a lay organization of people uh, working for the Catholic Church who are in prominent positions of industry and broadcasting and government and wherever. 
uh, whose goal is primarily to further the causes of the Catholic Church. Hmm. And uh, I'll, I'll just tell you parenthetically a story about this. I some years ago I worked for a man. Uh, I worked for a broad a, a a television company called Laurel Entertainment, and they were mostly well known for Tales from the Dark Side and a second uh, series called Monsters. These were uh, kind of horror science fiction things. Sure. And uh, I uh, I wrote for that for the Monsters series. And the the story editor I worked with was a really fascinating, really smart guy, and he really knew horror, and he really knew science fiction. And uh, he died uh, from a heart attack. And uh, I, I later found out that he was a member of Opus Dei and that he was a Catholic monk, actually, not even a civilian. He was a monk. And that at the, at the end of um, his day of working for Laurel Entertainment, producing a show like Monsters, uh, he would go, this was in New York City, he would go to um, a brownstone that was uh, a monastery that nobody knew was a monastery, hmm. and that he and other monks who worked, you know, clandestinely, let us say, in, uh, um, you know, other fields, you know, that's where they lived. Hmm. Uh, and I just thought that was absolutely fascinating. Sure. Uh, and, and that, you know, so anyway, the, the, uh, long answer, but yeah, it, it all kind of goes together, and and the, the discipline and the... The, uh, the word A S C E T I C asceticism of mm-hmm. of, uh, of of true spies is not unlike that of a religious order. Well, and I I actually pulled out one passage uh, from Brotherhood of the Rose where you mentioned that, and Chris and Saul are talking to each other, and Saul says to Chris, "Hey, what about you? That monastery didn't make you soft, I hope." And and Chris replies, "The the Cisternians." Chris laughed. Make me soft? They're the toughest order in the Catholic Church. They really don't talk? Not only that, they believe in brutal daily work. I might as well spend another six years in special forces. <laughs> and yeah. uh, I, and I kind of thought, yeah, that's probably true. I mean, that's and it kind of made me chuckle, but it was only because of the truth in it. So it was yeah, really and good. And those two, two, you know, Foster brothers, so to speak, you know, bantering back and forth. The Cistercians are a work order. Uh, they it's farming usually and uh, and they don't talk uh, I shouldn't say that if it were absolutely necessary about you know fixing a machine or a tractor or something <clears throat> there'd be some conversation to get the job done but mm-hmm. but but you know words in that context become you know utilitarian you speak for what's necessary in order to get the job done but but speaking as you know most of us do for entertainment um, you know that's that's just not, not it. And and the character in one of the characters in Brotherhood of the Rose was in the Cistercians for six years. And in uh, Fraternity of the Stone, hmm. uh, Drew McLean spends six years. He's not a monk, <clears throat> but in, in in atoning for sins that he can he feels he committed for his government uh, for six years, he has done nothing but pray and exercise in a cell in a <clears throat> monastery in uh, in New England. Um, until one day uh, people come looking for him. Um, so, yeah, it's a lot of fun to, uh, you know, just to sort of connect these these two um, strands. And uh, in in uh, the climax to Fraternity of the Stone, one of my favorite 
uh, speeches is um, uh, uh, Drew McLean finally uh, addressing a, a member of the <clears throat> church's intelligence system talks about the the history of warfare based upon con- religious conflict hmm. and 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 again it which takes us back really to to what we were saying about first blood and rambo and teasel which is it all depends on your point of view sure um, you know when the muslims um nearly conquered europe in the middle ages <clears throat> you know they were considered to be the equivalent of the devil, but they in turn were considering Christianity to be the equivalent of the devil. Right. And, you know. So I mean, you sometimes just wish to people would sit down and say, "All right, where, where did you get this idea?" I mean, <laughs> what, you know, let's let's talk about this. What, what kind of, you know? <laughs> yeah. And they say the same thing to uh, to a Christian to a Christian, and you know, try to figure out how on earth all these broad you know, hateful uh, viewpoints uh, got developed. Yeah. And, of course, this is a very sensitive thing now with, you know, what's happening with the, you know, all the developments in the Mideast now. Sure. The, you know, the bloodshed is terrible. But, um, you know, it, uh, I'm, I'm a big believer in, let's let's figure out, where the hell did you get this idea? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe we talk about this a bit until we shoot each other, you know. And exactly. Let, and, and instead of shooting each other. Well, it's 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 interesting that that you had mentioned that because I I was thinking about it and trying to figure out how to phrase a question for you and and I, the word compassion kept coming up to me because yeah. as I read um, the different novels that you've written and then I I read your book Fireflies which I I, I want to say at the same time as a father myself just how sorry I am uh, not only for the loss of your son but the loss of your granddaughter. And as I read the book, I mean, it just it just broke my heart. And um, and so I wanted to say, first of all, I just, you know, as a father myself, I'm so sorry. Um, well, I, yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. The, the uh, Matt died. My son died from a rare bone cancer called Ewing sarcoma, and only about 200 people get it each year uh, in the United States. And my granddaughter died from the same disease, and hmm. again, only 200 people get it. And it's not believed to be inherited. I I I think the authorities are wrong, but um, at least I was assured that this was just a cosmic, um, you know, outrage that sure. it, it, it it you know the odds against it were so great, and yet it had happened. But uh, and that it it had nothing to do with uh, inherited characteristics. So I I don't know, but right. it's 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 uh, it's a rough road to see two two children die horribly over a period of six months each oh. um and but you use the word compassion mm-hmm. and 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 that's important the most um the the largest grief organization in the world is called the compassionate friends and it is an organization for parents grandparents and siblings of uh dead children uh and uh that word compassion is is, is really uh, it, it's really so important because mm-hmm. what usually happens when somebody, especially uh, a dead child, but often in grief of any sort, is people come up with this lame, um, uh, this awkward, let us say, um, uh, phrase, well, I, I didn't know what to say, I didn't know what to do, so I thought I'd leave you alone. Right. Uh, and they don't do anything. 
Hmm. You know, and they hide basically and and let people suffer on their own. And whereas the compassionate friends is is about, hey, somebody's in trouble. Let's go figure out what we can do. Do you need some food? Can we bring you food? Because I know you don't have any energy at the moment. Um, you know, would you like somebody just to chat with you? Or at the very least, let me tell you mm-hmm. that I think this this awful what happened to you. I'm just so so awfully sorry. I mean, my words can't express it, and you know, just so you know that we don't want you to be alone. And I mean, you know, it's amazing to me how many people do not adults do not have the the, the fortitude or the imagination to be able to do that. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so, uh, what Fireflies is about is, I mean, ostensibly, it's about you know my relationship with my son mm-hmm. and what it's like to be in an intensive care ward with a dying child. In the you know that maybe other people would appreciate their children a little bit more. I don't know, um, but it, it, in the larger sense, it's about grief. It's about mortality. It's about that subject we were talking about earlier about sure. spirituality sure and and um, my goal you know people are always surprised and i hope that they're, they're sensing this is as even as, as we chat without being able to see me is that i hope what people carry away from an experience with me is my uh, attempt to exude good nature mm-hmm. um this might be the canadian in me i don't know <laughs> but uh <laughs> You know, uh, but um, um, there's a lot of uh, hostility. People are angry. I, I just don't get I You know, mm-hmm. I just don't understand why somebody just wouldn't make the, the effort to be kind of, you know, smile and say, well, you know, what can I do for you? Sure. Instead of being gruff. And it seems to me in our world today, gruffness is triumphant. Hmm. And it's just it's just a shame. And, uh, you know, I, I write action. I write suspense. Um, but uh, my my personality and I, and a lot of my characters are like this too. Uh, ultimately, um, are about good nature and about compassion and trying to be nice to, to people. Sure. Well, and that's the the thing that I find so interesting too is uh, you know that Rambo's daddy wants us to be compassionate, and I love that. <laughs> I really, well, I really is, do. There is a paradox, but it's in the you know the whole point of first sure. part is if they hadn't been so obstinate, none yeah. of that would have happened. Yeah, and I and I think that comes through. That's that's one reason that I that I love hearing you talk about this because I I do feel like even just talking to you now I hear a gentleness in your voice and and the word compassion as I looked at it more I mean it literally means to suffer with and as yeah. I was reading about you know kind of uh, I've I've read an updated edition of your book Fireflies and it's just some of the stories you were sharing about afterwards and yeah. being able to be there for other people and I feel like you are you exude a a compassion in a way to suffer with others who are suffering and I know that that must mean so much to so many people well it isn't and it's not just lip service I mean I have I give talks to, to grief groups I uh, um, you know in, in ways that I don't advertise I have helped a lot of people hmm. uh, and one of the reasons I, I co-founded with Gail Lynn's uh, organization called International Thriller Writers um, is that we wanted to help young writers be able to get have careers to to learn and grow and uh you know i've helped a lot of people earn a living uh and um and i i hope i've also helped a lot of people out of difficulty 
and, and, you know, I mean, but why should that be remarkable? Isn't that, you know, what we're supposed to be doing? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I sure. just go back. It seems to me this is, this is my view of what has happened in the modern world. It used to be that nasty, gruff people were considered, you know, the equivalent of the village idiot. Uh, you know, that if you were in a town and, you know, somebody like that, they say, oh, well, there's old, what's his name, you know, going on. And, you know, they'd ostracize him. They'd leave him alone. They wouldn't care about him. And, but he'd know he was in a minority. And, uh, but with the modern world and communication developing as it has, um, th- these minor, once minor factors in, in, in civilization have found counterparts uh, elsewhere and have been able to form a community and have been able to um, actually acquire some political power. Hmm. Uh, and, I mean, you know, it's, I don't know how to counteract it, but it's, um, you know, it's not good. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're just about out of time, David, and I, I I think my listeners would be mad at me, actually, if I didn't just really quickly touch on your comic book writing career. Uh, you have done, I, I really enjoyed, I didn't get a chance, unfortunately, to get a copy of what you wrote for Wolverine, but I did get to read Captain America the Chosen, I did get to read Spider-Man Frost, and uh, so let me just ask you, of, uh, of your time writing comic books, mm-hmm. is there a character of those three that you maybe enjoyed the most, or? Or um, just maybe I'll just ask you what you would like to share about that experience because I know it must stretch different muscles um, than the the novel writing and other endeavors that you've done. Well, what happened was that in 2006, uh, an editor from Marvel Comics contacted me to ask if the creator of Rambo would be interested in writing about another military icon, Captain America. Hmm. And I was when I was a kid. Um, <clears throat> near my home, there was a comic book store that specialized in, you know, this is the old days, uh, specialized in used comic books. I mean, comic books in the 1950s were, you know, were huge. <laughs> and, uh, and I used to roller skate over, and, oh, my God, the stuff you could, I mean, the really, really interesting things. And a lot of them were from um, uh, EC Comics, the Tales from the Crypt uh, haunts of horror and things like that. I mm-hmm. mean, really, these, these were strong stories, but so well told and so exciting. And, you know, the government um, uh, got upset uh, and, and throttled the comic book industry uh, and turned it into, you know, it, it just, you know, simple, simple. And it wasn't until the 1980s with, uh, Cap- with uh, Batman, the Dark Knight, uh, that uh, uh, that you know things started to come back to be as exciting as they were. So anyway, when I was asked to, to do this, I was excited because um, I was sort of going back to you know my love of comic books from when I was very young sure. and when they were when they were created and and as they are now. So um, they were I was given a, a, a six. They wanted me to do a six part. <clears throat> and um, I always go to the core of a character, and I, I, I so my the question I asked, I wanted to do it about Captain America himself, and what's the key to Captain America? And you know he he can die, uh, he can be injured. He's not you know he's not supernatural. 
he just happens to have a very, very uh, elevated uh, uh, physical skills. Sure. And uh, so I, I asked myself, uh, Captain America uh, was in, came about because of, you know, just after uh, Pearl Harbor. Hmm. Uh, World War II, uh, 1941. And and uh, I so I said, what does it feel like to be a superhero named after the United States uh, who's been fighting whatever corruption, uh, whatever enemy, since 1942? Hmm. He's got to be tired. You know, the burden, yeah. what does it mean to, what is the burden of being that kind of superhero? Mm-hmm. And so that's what I, you know, that's what I went into, and my answer was that it would wear him down so much that he couldn't do it anymore, and that he would appeal, the ultimate theme of it is that inside of us, we all have the capacity to be a superhero if we but open ourselves and f- enough and dig deep enough to find the, the strength within us. So I thought it was a pretty powerful theme. Mm-hmm. And, and then I was asked, um, and that's available as a book, as you know, and I have an afterword uh, for it, talking about this sort of thing. And I also have the script for the first issue, because so people would realize that writing a comic book is a very, very, very detailed thing. Sure. The author, the writer, chooses how many images per page, uh, and writes the dialogue, if it, if the captions, the and, and things for it, and uh, even uh, can choose colors and things. You know, a full page, half page, six images a page. It really, it's almost like writing a movie. Mm. Uh, so then, uh, uh, Marvel asked me to do a, a two-part Spider-Man, and there again, I wanted to, you know, the duality between Peter Parker and Spider-Man, you know. Uh, and, you know, the humanity, if you like, of Peter Parker and his love for Aunt May and how this would be tested when a, a super blizzard hits New York City and Aunt May is freezing to death in the, in the outskirts where she lives. Um, and Spider-Man, uh, in spite of just being absolutely, you know, dead, tired, is rushing to save her. But uh, everywhere he turns, there are other people who need help. Uh, people are freezing to death themselves or, mm. you know, accidents or fires or what have you. And that so here we have the conflict between, you know, the the essence of Spider-Man is with great power comes great responsibility. So what's he going to do? Say to hell with all of you and I'm going to go save Aunt May? Or is he going to save all of these people and let Aunt May die? So that's, the you know, the core of that. And then with, when I did Wolverine, again... What does it mean to be Wolverine? He's part human, he's part animal. And uh, which part controls him? Uh, And I wanted to, in a cynical moment, I wanted to uh, write a story in which he would choose his animal side as being more dignified. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, uh, so it's, uh, you know, it's been a, it's been a good ride and, um, you know, on my website, davidmorell.net, I have information about how people can get to these, uh, comic books because they've been released all in book form, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, people can, can learn about them, but yeah, it's been, been pretty, you know, if you think about what a trifecta, um, if that's the right word, uh, for, you know, Captain America, Spider-Man and Wolverine, these are, you know, it's been cool.
Yeah, I'd I'd love it if uh, if uh, across the street DC would ask you to do some stuff. I think it would be neat to see your take on some of their iconic characters like well, Superman would, or I Batman. Would, believe me, I wouldn't mind. But you know, they, they have their own house writers, and sure. you know, I'm, uh, it's tough to get the gig. And you know, they just came to me and said, "You want to do it?" I was quite surprised. Uh, to, but they haven't. You know, the last time they asked me was a year ago in January. Mm. So, you know, I'm, I'm thinking maybe all their house writers have taken over now. And, um, you know, I might be asked again, but maybe not. You know, I did it. I did yeah. it. And what I'm, what I'm working on now is we were talking about 43 years, a long career, and evolving and, sure. uh, and developing just as I did in the comic books. And these days I, I became fascinated because of my granddaughter's death in 2009. I wanted to escape from the modern world, and I fell in love with the Victorian era, particularly hmm. 1850s London. And um, a man named Thomas De Quincey was a real man. Uh, he was known for writing a sensational book called Confessions of an English Opium Eater. Uh, and uh, <laughs> opium in the 1800s was legal. You could get it anywhere. Uh, I mean, it was cheap, and, and everybody had it in their medicine cabinet because uh, the way we have aspirin was hmm. the only effect pain relievers. And uh, he he became addicted to it and wrote about his addiction at a time when nobody would admit they were addicted. Hmm. Uh, and uh, the the opium caused um, uh, nightmares of uh, epic proportion. And uh, when when and, and he would think about these nightmares and. Uh, he finally concluded, I'm going to give you a quote here I love to give, he finally concluded that the human mind was composed of chasms and sunless abysses, layer upon layer, in which there are secret chambers where alien natures can hide undetected. Hmm. And if that sounds like Freud, <laughs> now that was written 70 years before Freud, but we know that Freud read Baudelaire's translation of De Quincey. Wow. Uh, the French translation. And uh, anyhow, I thought it would be cool to use this opium eater, and that was his nickname. He was known as the opium eater for all of his life, uh, as a uh, consultant to Scotland Yard. And that in the early days of Scotland Yard, you know, they're busy, you know, they're inventing. They think they're pretty hot because they got plaster casts for footprints. And along would come De Quincey talking about the chasms and sunless abysses of the human mind. Hmm. And they don't know what he's talking about, but that he would use pre-Freudian theories to match the beginnings of Scotland Yard in order to solve, you know, seemingly unsolvable crimes. So... Anyway, I've been doing this. I I researched. Uh, I've, re- I've done two books about the Quincy murder as a fine art and Inspector of the Dead. Uh, both set in 1850s London. And to research them, I literally spent three years doing, uh, in which all I read were books about that era and the Quincy and you know London and the Victorian period and all of that to become an expert in it and to try to convince people that they themselves were on those fog-bound, harrowing streets. Hmm. Uh, so it's been quite a ride. I'm working on the third one. It was a trilogy. I knew it would be a trilogy. So I'm working on the third one, which will come out next year. But, um, you know, it's it sort of it fits in with what you were talking about with regard to 
you know, having done the, I mean, look at what, you know, we have First Blood, and then we were talking about Brotherhood of the Rose, which yeah. is a whole different, it's a, it's a, uh, you know, a classic es- espionage mm-hmm. uh, novel that mixes in elements of religion, and, you know, the comic book things that I did later, and then, you know, here I am writing about um, uh, Quincy and 1850s London, but to me, it's all part of the same thing. It's about, um, you know, trying trying to understand what we are, and to try to understand the different viewpoints that make people what they are, uh, and to you know have a have an adventure, if you like, you know, to eat. For me to keep growing in my 43rd year as a writer, it's a big deal for me. Yeah. Well, and I, I just, you know, as we're talking about this, I'm thinking, you know what, you're, you may have more say to now, or more to say to us now than you've ever had to say before, because I, I think of some of my favorite, um, like even singer-songwriter people, uh, Paul Simon, for instance, someone like that, yeah. at his age now, you know, he's been doing it for so long, and yet if you listen to like his lyrics of his his albums and yeah, the music he yeah. brings there is a richness there that wasn't there years and years ago and so well, I, there's a, there's, yeah there's a merit to <laughs> to living uh you know to and growing that's the key is growing and <clears throat> you yourself <clears throat> and everybody listening i'm sure knows somebody if they just pay take a moment to think about it who never grew yeah. Uh, whose mind stayed the same as 20 years ago, hmm. uh, you know, and that person's dead and doesn't doesn't even know it. If you know, if we wake up the same from day to day, uh, something's wrong. Yeah. Uh, because we haven't acquired uh, uh, experience and learned from it. Uh, you know, we other otherwise you just shut yourself down. So it's a big deal for me about the development and 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 finding our way and uh, getting fuller. Sure thing. Well, David, it has been such a real pleasure, and I, I just so appreciate you taking some time to be on the show today. I appreciate your writing. I want to say to everyone listening, go to davidmorell.net, and you're going to find a lot to read there because uh, David has been at it for a while, and he's got some so many great choices for you. Uh, and if you are especially a, a fan of action novels, um, and, and really, as, as you've heard us talk about today, it's not all even just action novels. I mean, there's there's just such a, a wide uh, variety of things that you have written. So thank you so much, and thank you for being you're one quite, of the. You're quite welcome. I, I found it very interesting. Uh, I think we had a good conversation. For sure. Well, thank you for being one of the voices in my head this week. Okay. Very good. <laughs> bye bye. All right. You take care, David. You've been listening to Voices in My Head, the official podcast of Rick Lee James. If you'd like to know more about me, my ministry, my music, my life, go to my website at rickleejames.com. And I'd love this to be a community experience, so if you call 937-505-0162, you can leave feedback, you can give me suggestions for future shows, you can even record comments that I can play on the next podcast. So let's make this something really great together. 937-505-0162. Thank you so much for listening to Voices in My Head, the official Rick Lee James podcast. God bless.